I invite you this morning to turn once again to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 19, and we'll read through verse 2 of chapter 7. And as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, we're going to be talking today about the difference between being spiritually mature and spiritually immature. And I want to start exploring why this topic is so important by kind of just giving you a somewhat short list of some characteristics of spiritually mature people. Uh, you're, these are all in Scripture. You're going to hear that as I quote a number of Bible verses. But here it goes. Um, spiritually mature Christians are not afraid of emotions, nor are they controlled by emotions. And that's why they can, as God calls them to, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. These are saints who are able to receive others in whatever state they're in and listen to them and love them where they are, as they are, without running from them or trying to fix them or control them. Spiritually immature Christians, however, are afraid of emotions, and therefore they are controlled by them, uh, which is why they're either suppressed, you know, just push it deep down, or they spray them around in an effort to try and kind of get them out and get them away from them. In fact, spiritually immature Christians insist that people only show the emotions that make them feel comfortable. That's why they can't handle people being sad or angry or confused at times when they don't feel that. They themselves don't feel that way. And so they'll effectively tell people how they are allowed to feel around them so that they can feel <clears throat> excuse me, comfortable. In other words, immature Christians try to make you meet their needs rather than meeting you in your needs. Spiritually mature Christians are comfortable with imperfection and failure in both themselves and in others. And that's why they can respond with patience and gentleness and kindness because they know that their identity is not rooted in their success or their failure. It's rooted in Jesus who receives them as they are. And out of that deep relationship, they can respond like Christ himself does to us. It's why they give second chances and third chances and give gentle instruction and build healthy boundaries and enforce them in good ways and live with, uh, as far as it depends on them, at peace with those who are around them, as Paul calls us to do in Romans chapter 15. Spiritually mature Christians are those who practice regular rest and regular weekly Sabbath and prayer and weekly worship because they know that to be mature and growing, they need to be rooted deeply in the love of God that's found in Christ. Now, of course, Sabbath, prayer, worship, they are not themselves the love of God, but these are the things that give us the space that we need to relate to God, who is himself a person, three persons, one God. And they give us the time we need to be focused on him and to be rooted in him. And that's why spiritually mature Christians build their lives on these things. This, these are the foundational points upon which spiritually mature Christians build the framework of their daily, weekly, and yearly lives. Drawing near to God frequently and regularly is the foundation upon which a spiritually mature life is built. Spiritually immature Christians, however, they don't practice rest. They don't practice regular Sabbath. They don't practice regular worship. And therefore, they have the tendency to treat God not as a person to be received, not as a person to be loved, but as a tool to be used. Uh, God is someone to be looked to when I need things. And then I just kind of ignore him 
when he gets in the way of what I want. I obey him when it's convenient to achieving my goals, and I set him aside when he gets in the way of them. Uh, I like to say God becomes like a screwdriver. You pick him up when you need him to fix the thing, and then you put him down when you don't. And of course, the reality is the way we Christians treat our relationship with Jesus tends to become the way we treat the people around us. If we are people who slow down and focus on loving and listening to God and on rooting our identity in the image of God and on his forgiveness, on pouring out our emotions to him, not hiding them from him or from ourselves, but letting them out to him in confidence and trust that he hears and listening to his word as a response to us in scripture and through his people. And we listen with charity and curiosity and respond with love and righteousness. If we do that, if we have that kind of relationship with Jesus, then we will tend to be the kind of people who slow down and focus on loving and listening to each other with charity and with curiosity, responding with love and righteousness, rooting people's identities in the image of God and in the forgiveness offered by Christ in the gospel, which opens our hearts to compassion to them and patience with them and generosity to them. See, that's the transformative power of being connected to Jesus. That's the power and the fruit of spiritual maturity. But if we use God as a tool that we pick up when it's convenient, uh, we'll tend to use people as tools as well, connecting with them when it feels useful to us and putting them away when it's not. Uh, And this is why spiritual maturity is so important. Spiritual maturity is life-giving. It brings blessing. It brings help. It brings peace. But spiritual immaturity brings hurt and pain and even, I think, death. And it's my belief, as we'll talk about this morning, that our text, which I admit is a little cryptic, is actually reflecting on these two categories when we see death come to the spiritually immature saints at Beth Shemesh, but life come to and through the saints of Kiriath-Jearim. And I think our text is calling us to reflect on how the spiritual maturity of the saints at Kiriath-Jearim brought life and even repentance and growth towards God to Israel. So let's read our text, 1 Samuel 6, 19, 7 through 2. <clears throat> Pray, and then we'll reflect on all this together under our three points. Spiritual immaturity is deadly. Spiritual maturity is life-giving. And then yearning for the spiritual uh, maturity, the life that spiritual maturity brings. So 1 Samuel 6, starting in verse 19. This picks up immediately where we stopped last week uh, in our last sermon. So uh, chapter 6, verse 19. And he, that is God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years. 
And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us this morning to hear and understand your word so that uh, we can understand the importance of spiritual maturity and also begin to understand how to pursue it more in our lives so that we would be uh, a community where life flows to your people into your world, the life of, of Christ in us. Father, we know that this will not be possible, though, unless you bless your word to us. And so therefore, we pray that you would give us now minds to understand your word, ears to hear it, and hearts to receive it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts, as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, our text picks up immediately where we left off last week. Uh, you may, may remember that we focused on how uh, as the Philistines were returning the Ark of God to Israel, they came up with a test to figure out if Jesus was capricious or responsive. That is, is Jesus just a God who does like random things as the mood strikes him? Or is Jesus a God who does responsive things that are aimed at life? And we saw how Jesus answered their test by showing that he is responsive. Remember, Jesus orchestrated everything so that the Levites, who happened to be in Beth Shemesh, offered what turned out to be a guilt offering for the Philistines' mistreatment of the ark. And we saw how the lords of the Philistines, they saw it, and they go away with the beautiful answer that Jesus is not arbitrary. He's not moody. He's not capricious. He doesn't act willy-nilly. He is responsive and good and hears even the cries of those who are not his people, in this case, the Philistines. And that's very important for us to see because right after that, our text tells us, like right after that, it tells us in verse 19, Jesus struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. Like That is a very surprising turn of events. Just a minute ago, it seems like, the people of Beth Shemesh were rejoicing at the return of the ark. They were offering thanksgiving sacrifices and they were singing and they were dancing and the Philistines were going away with hope that Jesus is responsible and merciful. And then suddenly, 70 men are killed by Jesus. Well, knowing what we do about Jesus' character, we can say very clearly that Jesus is responding to something. And the text tells us what that is. These 70 men of Israel had looked upon the ark of the Lord. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was mad that they could see the ark? Is it a sin to look at the ark? Uh, no. Thankfully, that's not it. Uh, so what is it? Uh, well, that phrase translated as looked upon, which could also be translated as looked at, or even looked in, as some translations have it, that does not mean simply that someone saw something. That's not how it's used. It means that someone has inspected something and has decided to take action. So it's probably good to know that the phrase looked upon is usually used to describe God. For instance, when Leah in Genesis, Jacob's wife, remember Jacob did not love Leah, when she gave birth to her firstborn son Reuben, she said, the Lord has looked upon my distress She's saying, uh, Jesus saw me in my loneliness and in my anguish 
And after inspecting my life and looking closely at it with his eyes of grace, he acted to help me. See, Jesus is responsive. He looks upon us in order to respond to us. It's probably also good to know that of all that uh, out of all the times that the Bible uses the phrase looked upon, it's used positively, at least as far as I could tell, as a way of describing God inspecting his people and acting with grace. Let me look at my people. Let me understand their situation. How can I help? I will help in this way. Or it's used to describe God's people inspecting Jesus' glory and acting with praise and hope. Times when God's people will say, I was lost and alone and afraid, but then I came into the temple and I looked upon the glory of God. I gazed and inspected his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. And then my heart was filled with thanks and praise and I left assured. All the times, as far as I could tell, it's positive, but not here. Here, the men of Beth Shemesh seem to have done some form of sinful inspection. And they've taken some kind of sinful action. Now, we're not told exactly what they did. And it could be something as simple as they opened up the ark and they looked in it, which was forbidden and carried with it the threat of death. And that would make this very much a case of curiosity killed the cat. You could see the situation where they're saying, hey, we've never had the ark this close before. I've heard there's things in it. Let's take a peek inside. Uh, And you'd have basically the scenario of God saying you were warned. You did it anyway. You got the punishment. But to me, context clues from the larger context of Samuel give us, I think, an even more probing and transformative reading for us. So remember, the ark was originally lost to the Philistines at the beginning of 1 Samuel because the Israelites had been acting in a spiritually mature way. They had tried to treat God, as we talked about at the beginning, like a screwdriver who would turn the screws on the Philistines and give Israel the victory that they wanted on their terms and in their timing. And the whole point of God removing the ark from Israel was to bring Israel into a dark night of the soul where she would be forced to confront her idolatry and her spiritual immaturity for her using God as a screwdriver, or if you wanted to be philosophical, for instrumentalizing the Lord, turning him into a tool to be used when you want. And because Jesus' goal was to perform spiritual surgery and remove these idols so that Israel could mature through repentance, he has the ark taken away from Israel. Like that was, That's the point. That's the context that leads us back to this section of 1 Samuel. So when Jesus responds to the inspection and the action of these 70 men, I think given the larger context, we are meant to picture a bunch of guys walking around the ark trying to figure out how to make it work for them. Like, how do we use this screwdriver? Is it like a genie lamp? Do we have to rub it? Uh, Maybe there's a switch. Maybe there's a lever. Maybe the wing of the cherubim, you know, you pull it up and down a few times and then God pops out and you get three wishes. Maybe we need some magic words, right? Hocus pocus, abradabradu, Lord, do what I tell you to, right? You see, it seems to me if we're going to carry over what we know of Jesus from the previous paragraphs to this one, that is responsive to sin, that he wounds in order to heal, that he kills in order to make alive, Hosea 6.1. And if we're going to be uh, sensitive to the larger context of 1 Samuel, then this reading, I think, makes Jesus' actions incredibly understandable. He's still working to address the spiritual immaturity in his people 
and he's still using a dark night of the soul to do it. And I also think that's the issue because after Jesus does this, the men of the people of Beth Shemesh act in an incredibly spiritually immature way. As a matter of fact, I think you'll see a lot of echoes between them and the Philistines who also did not treat the ark with respect. Um, and who, like here, the Philistines act uh, similarly to when they experience God's uh, opposition, which is they decide to send the ark away as quickly as possible. I mean, just a few minutes before, they were so glad the ark was there. They're celebrating, they're dancing, they're offering sacrifices. And then God opposes them. Seventy men die, and suddenly they want the ark gone. This is the greatest thing that ever happened. Get it away from me as fast as possible. It's almost like they're controlled by their emotions. Um, and just to add this, in other parts of the Old Testament, when God disciplines his people this way in Scripture, whether it's when the Israelites in the wilderness, when some of them are struck down in battle because of Achan's sin, or the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, where some of the saints are dying because of their misuse of the Lord's Supper, the people cry out to Jesus in those contexts. They ask Jesus why. They lament. They seek his face. They ask God for guidance so that they can repent or understand or grow. That's a spiritually mature action, my friends. See, spiritually mature people, when they realize that the Lord is opposing them for some reason, they think that the Lord is opposing them for some reason, they fall on their knees and they ask Jesus, why? Or when they're afraid, they acknowledge their fear and they ask for comfort and help. You can see this throughout the Psalms. That is, they draw near to God. They don't try to push God away. I mean, isn't that spiritual maturity? I mean, if you just think about emotional maturity in your own life, when someone is opposing you or challenging you for your good and you know it's for your good, and so you draw closer to them and you say, like, this is hard to hear, but tell me more. Like, help me understand. What are you saying I need to change? How do I need to change? Like, that is maturity in relationship to people, and it's maturity in relationship to God. But spiritual immaturity drives loving challenge, oppositions, questions, and critiques away, like the Philistines do, like the people of Beth Shemesh are doing. So all that to say that what I believe we see here with the people of Beth Shemesh are some of the consequences of their spiritual immaturity, which has been persisting from the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. They face Jesus' opposition. They respond to that opposition, opposition, understandably, with fear, but then they try to drive away his opposition and his challenge and his presence. And just to add this too, we also say this immaturity causes great communal suffering. Seventy men. Right? This isn't one immature person. This was a whole community that was suffering from a spiritually immature relationship to God and to each other. Or if you want to think in New Testament terms, it's just like the Corinthian church when we talked about 1 Corinthians a number of years ago. The whole community was suffering because of their spiritually immature way of dealing with each other and conflict and Jesus and correction. Spiritual immaturity brings death. And that brings us to our second point, which is spiritual maturity brings life. It's life-giving. So after they decide to send the ark away, we're told in verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jarim, Jarim, uh, 
got to get that. Kiriath Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, just to point a few things out. First, in their immaturity, notice that the people of Beth Shemesh do not tell the full story. They don't tell how the ark came back, carried by a cart, pulled by cows without a driver. They don't tell them that there are gold trophies, 10 of them, with it. One wonders what happened to the gold. Uh, And they don't tell them that Jesus has just struck down 70 of their men because of their sinful inspection. Did you you notice that? Why not? Well, it's got to be because they're afraid that the truth will chain them to disaster rather than doing what Jesus says it will do in his scriptures, which is that it will set us free. They're afraid of the truth. They don't embrace the truth. It's just more signs of spiritual immaturity and the fear it breeds and the danger that it puts people into. Because when the men of Kiriath-Jerim, what if they had been different kinds of people? What if they had been spiritually immature like the people of Beth Shemesh? Right? They're putting their fellow Israelites in danger. But... Because Jesus loves his people, it seems that he had them choose the people of Kiriath-Jerim on purpose. And we're told that they come and they get the ark. Now we can assume, especially given the fact that they consecrated priests, which we'll talk about in a second, that they knew that taking care of the ark is a huge responsibility. There are rules that needed to be followed that deal with life and death, both for them and for Israel. There are sacrifices that need to be made on a regular basis so that God and his people will, be, will stay joined together in a healthy way, in ways that give and receive forgiveness and hope and life, not just for the people of Kiriath-Jerim, but for all of Israel. To take God into your life here for, for Kiriath-Jerim is to take on the burden of being a blessing to the world and of bearing witness to God and of standing between God and your brothers and sisters and it, it, it's an incredibly important position. In other words, to take the ark in the community was understood to be very weighty. And I think we need to assume that they didn't say yes because they were arrogant or proud. I don't think they're a community that was like, we're awesome, let's take the ark. Uh, I think they said yes because they knew the God who made the ark deeply. And they knew how to listen to him. And they knew how to love him and how to receive him. And, how, and they, uh, they knew how to represent him. That is, they said yes because they were spiritually mature. And so they had confidence in their relationship with Jesus and in his grace and in his goodness. That together they could work this out for the good of, of God's people. And I say that for three reasons. The first, you'll notice in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, they put the ark in the house of Abinadab on the hill, which means this is an important person. And while we can't know this for sure, Abinadab was most likely one of David's brothers. Kiriath-Jerim was in Judah. The only other Abinadab mentioned anywhere in the Bible, and he's mentioned several other places, is David's brother. So I think it's very likely that the ark arrives at the house of a very spiritually mature, godly Family would also kind of make sense why eventually Samuel winds up in that family. 
Second, you'll notice that when the ark arrives, they consecrate Abinadab's son Eleazar as a priest. Now, that's very. Now, what's very interesting is that while Eleazar was a pretty common priestly name, there's no evidence at all that Eleazar or Abinadab were Levites or priests at all. And uh, that's especially true if, as is likely, Abinadab was a part of David's family. But that raises a huge question which is why would God allow the ark to be ministered to by a non-priestly family? And then relatedly, why is Samuel, who is, who is in fact a priest and a prophet, why is he not involved in this at all? He doesn't show up till the next verse. Uh, in fact, to carry this further, it appears that other than the consecration of a priest, very little of what the Lord commands about the ark happens. And yet the Lord seems pleased. No one is opposed, no one's disciplined, no one's killed. Uh, in fact, and this is the third reason why I think spiritual maturity is what we see in Kiryat Jerim, uh, the ark will stay here until David brings it to Jerusalem more than 20 years later, verse 2 says. So I'm saying all of this to show you why the people of Kiryat Jerim must have properly, under, properly understood how to relate to Jesus and how to listen and how to help others listen because they step into this need in a very unique way and Jesus blesses it. Which also shows us, I think, something really important and very hard for Presbyterians like me to hear, which is how much our Lord values the heart over the system. Which is what he will go on, which is uh, what he will go on to say in First Samuel about David himself, right? The Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. You see, the Lord is more concerned with the maturity of the people doing the ministry than he is with the exact form of the ministry. Like I said, that can make us uncomfortable because obviously form matters. I mean, it mattered here too. That's why they consecrated a priest. But very clearly, the heart here matters more than all the other things that God had set up for Israel's good. Maturity matters more. Proper ordination of Old Testament priests matters. But here, very clearly, love matters more. See, this whole context, I think, shows us that what matters most to Jesus is spiritual maturity. And it shows us why it's so important. These spiritually mature saints were able to stand in the gap between God and his spiritually immature people during their dark night of the soul and bring help and life to Israel. As a matter of fact, they were able to help lead Israel into repentance and into maturity. Why do I say that? Well, it's our last point. Our text ends this way in verse 2. From the day that the ark lodged at kiriath Jearim, a long time passed, some 20 years, that is when David comes and gets the ark later. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Uh, lamented is a good translation, though I do think it makes it sound like Israel is mourning the loss of Jesus, which I don't think makes a tremendous amount of sense because Jesus is in Israel. The ark is there. Uh, so I think a better translation that avoids that potential reading is yearned. All the house of Israel yearned after the Lord. Now, why would the ark lodging in Kiriath Jearim cause Israel to yearn after the Lord? Well, here's my understanding. 
uh, when you're yearning after the Lord or when you're lamenting after the Lord, what you're doing in the Bible is desiring a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's all it means. That's all it means. You're just saying, I want to know Jesus better. I want to love him better. I want to receive his love better. I want to follow him more closely. I just, I just want more Jesus in my life. I want the joy of Christ to explode from my heart. And it seems to me that now for the very first time in a long while, the very first time in 1 Samuel, Israel is seeing in these mature saints the kind of life with Jesus that is possible. The kind of life where you are at peace with him. Where he's not opposing you, but standing in solidarity with you. Where you know him in such a way that you feel safe being with him. Where you're not afraid and you don't want to push him away. Where his presence fills you and your life with hope and with the ability to help and serve and be joyful and patient and self-sacrificial with those around you. All the things that are necessary if you're going to be entrusted with something as important in the Old Testament as the Ark of God. It seems, it seems to me that these saints showed Israel the kind of life with Christ that's possible. And that vision of life with God that is peaceful and restful and joyful and blessed and good provoked a deep yearning in Israel for the same kind of relationship with the Lord. In fact, I think it explains why verse 3 of chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, so like the very next verse, will go on to say, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Right out of the blue again. What brought this desire to repent about? What connects this sudden announcement that they want to repent with the passage that comes right before where the ark arrives in Kiriath-Jerim. The yearning that was produced in Israel by the life that Jesus had with those saints. You see, spiritual maturity brings life. It's why Jesus will say things like, um, let your good deeds shine before others so that they may see them and ask you the reason for the hope that lies within, which is saying, how do I get that kind of life? How do I become like you in your relationship to your neighbors and to Christ? Next week, I want to think about this in much more detail. But for today, let me just end with this encouragement. Um, Jesus' goal for us as a community is spiritual maturity because it brings life to us and it brings life to our neighbors. And the more spiritually mature we are, the more Jesus can entrust us with his life, just like he could trust the ark to the people of Kiriath-Jerim. The more life of Jesus we have, beloved, the more we can give it out. Right? You can't give what you don't possess. Uh, and the more of the life of Jesus we get to give out, the more people around us will yearn to have that kind of deep relationship with Jesus for themselves. And that's why as our series continues next week, Lord willing, we're going to start uh, reflecting on how Jesus goes about transforming us and maturing us so that we can be a people uh, where we are looked at by our neighbors and our friends and 
They can yearn to know Jesus because of the kind of life we have with him. Because I think we all very much want to be a church where people look at us and say, like, man, I want the kind of relationship with Jesus they have. And then, because we possess that relationship given to us by Christ, we can invite them in and give it to them by offering them what we ourselves have already received from Christ. To me, that sounds like an incredible blessing. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we want to be a community um, where people look at our relationship with you and our relationship with each other in you and long to have that for themselves. And so we ask that you would lead us down the path of spiritual maturity so that together we would more and more become a place where everyone can come and taste and see the glory of Jesus and his goodness as we live together with him by faith. Uh, Father, please do not let us live spiritually immature lives. Instead, please help us to mature and grow so that together we can enjoy more fully the height, breadth, and depth of your love, which is found for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.